0: The Irish Crimes podcast contains content of a sensitive nature and is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. In part one of Veronica Guerin, Murder of a Crime Journalist, we took a look at the journalist's early life, career and her ascension to become Ireland's leading newspaper crime reporter. We examined the origins of the rise in crime in Ireland in the 1990s, the two main figures involved in the creation of a narcotic supply chain, and how Veronica's world collided with the criminal underworld, leading to her murder in broad daylight. In this episode, we detail the aftermath, the public outcry, governmental action, and the efforts of the Garda Síochána in bringing her killers to justice. We also take a look at the origins of the other gang members working alongside John Gilligan and John Traynor, the court cases that follow, and finally, her legacy 25 years on. Welcome to part two, the concluding part of a two-part episode of The Irish Crimes. Veronica Guerin, Murder of a Crime Journalist. Veronica Guerin, journalist, wife and mother, died instantly on June 26, 1996, shortly before 1pm from injuries sustained in a premeditated gun attack. Her stationary car was covered in a crimson blanket. Her body lay in her red Opal Calibra on the M7 motorway at the Nace Road Junction, between the Green Isle Hotel and Newlands Cross in the outside lane. Within minutes, the guardie arrived, and the Dublin-bound side of the dual carriageway was sealed off with Garda tape. Onlookers and journalists alike began to gather at the cordoned-off area to see what was going on. Shortly after, ballistics experts and forensic scientists arrived at the scene and examined the area, combing the crime scene for evidence. At about 3:30 p.m., two and a half hours after the murder. Steel framed screens were erected to surround Veronica's car to shield from onlookers. News of the murder had already begun to circulate. RTE, the Irish state funded broadcaster, were the first to report that a woman had been shot dead on the news at one program on RTE Radio One. Ireland's only evening newspaper, the Evening Herald, released her name, leading with the sobering headline Veronica Gearin is shot dead. At 4.30 p.m., the Garda held a press conference at Luke and Garda station. Superintendent Brian O'Higgins of the Garda Press Office remarked that he knew Miss Guerin extremely well, and it makes it all the more difficult to accept. At about 5.30 p.m., the chief state pathologist Professor John Harbison arrived to the scene and examined the body. An hour later, she was removed and taken to James Connolly Memorial Hospital in Blanchardstown where around 10pm she would be formally identified by her husband, Graeme Turley and brother Jimmy Guerin. Veronica Guerin's funeral service was held on Saturday, June 29, 1996, three days after her death at the Church of Our Lady Queen of Heaven at Dublin Airport. The funeral mass conducted by Father Declan Doyle took place at the same church Veronica and her family attended regularly. The hymn Be Not Afraid was played and was chosen by Veronica herself in the event of her death. The funeral was almost state like attended by her family, journalists and politicians of the day, such as the President Mary Robinson, Taoiseach John Bruton, Justice Minister Nora Owen, and the leader of the Fianna Fáil party, Bertie Ahern. Her body was interred at Dardistown Cemetery. Taoiseach John Bruton condemned the murder calling it an attack on democracy and sinister in the extreme noting that without the work which she did much of the recent public debate on crime would not have been as informed as it was the tonishta or deputy prime minister dick spring added that she should be shot down in this fashion is an attack on all of us and on the values that democracy and democratic politics are based on it is an outrageous attack on the freedom of the press and the invaluable work that journalists do. The Irish nation went into mourning. Hundreds of bouquets of flowers and cards were placed outside government buildings at Leinster House. The people of Ireland, who had come to know Veronica Guerin through her writing and media appearances, had lost one of their own. Alongside grief came frustration and anger. One bouquet of flowers left the note. Politicians, your negligence is Veronica's death. Another rose action now, let not Veronica's life and death be in vain, have the guts to finish her work. Be not afraid. A book of condolence was opened at the Sunday Independent Headquarters, which received thousands of signatures. Veronica's murder, together with the murder of Guarded Detective Jerry McCabe on June 7th of the same year, would stir up unprecedented nationwide emotion. Many newspaper headlines would be devoted to her murder. The country had witnessed just how far criminality would go to protect their interests. A line had been crossed. The people had enough. It was time for change. With two prominent Irish figures murdered within 19 days of each other, the government knew that they had to take swift action in enacting the changes needed to bring the criminals to justice. New legislation, and further Garda resources were top priority. The first step would be to recall the doll from summer recess to hold an emergency sitting. A new Garda commissioner, Pat Byrne, was appointed. Noel Conroy would replace Byrne in his role as deputy commissioner. The Minister for Justice, Nora Owen, would play a pivotal role in the legislative changes to come. The Garda would be strengthened by increasing recruitment numbers the judicial system would also benefit. More judges for the courts and more staff for the Department of Justice were to be appointed to ensure efficiency in the court system. A prison building program was also announced. What is to this day considered to be the most significant legislative development arising from any governmental reaction is the Proceeds of Crime Act 1996, passed on July 25th of that year originating from a private member's bill devised by John O'Donohue, the opposition Justice Spokesperson of the day, the proposed legislation would allow the Gardaí freedom in seizing assets suspected to have been gained from the proceeds of criminal activity. On July 31, 1996, the Criminal Assets Bureau, or CAB, came into being, receiving its statutory powers once the Criminal Assets Bureau Act came into law on October 15 of the same year. So what exactly is the Criminal Assets Bureau? The cab was established as an independent statutory body which seeks to deny and deprive criminals of assets acquired through criminal conduct, which includes drug trafficking, theft, burglary, fraud and money laundering. The Criminal Assets Bureau has the power to acquire, hold and dispose of land or an interest in land and to acquire, hold and dispose of any other property. In 2016, the Bureau was given two extra powers under the Proceeds of Crime Amendment Act 2016. Section 1A provides for the seizure of assets by Bureau officers under limited circumstances, and reduced the threshold of value in proceeds of crime cases from 13 to 5,000 euro. In the event assets are disposed of, the proceeds of sale are given to the central fund central fund is the bank account held in the central bank, which is used for government spending, also known as the Exchequer. To put it simply, the citizens of Ireland are to benefit. The Bureau itself is comprised of members of Angarda Siakana, officials from the Office of the Revenue Commissioners, Taxes and Customs, officials of the Department of Social Protection, together with staff from the Department of Justice, including the Bureau Legal Officer, forensic accountants, financial crime analysts, IT experts, and administrative staff. The Bureau would need to be protected to ensure the successful operation of the new unit. To allay any fears of intimidation from criminals, Section 10 of the Criminal Assets Bureau Act 1996 provides for the statutory anonymity of Bureau officers and Bureau staff, irrespective of whether they're a part of the Guard of Force. Instead of using names, the Bureau members are referred to by code, and the codes are used when swearing affidavits or giving evidence in court. The powers which the cab would attain would be some of the most advanced Europe had seen to date. Chief Superintendent Fachtna Murphy, who had a wealth of experience in dealing with taxation and financial fraud, would become its first ever Chief Bureau Officer. Barry Galvin would be another appointee, becoming its first Chief Legal Officer. Mr. Galvin was Cork's state solicitor and was already outspoken in bringing attention to international criminals operating in Ireland, pointing out on The Late Late Show, a current affairs chat show TV program, that major drug criminals had bought properties in the southwest of Ireland. The setting up of the Criminal Assets Bureau was a historic moment for the state, although it had its teething problems, both operationally and structurally. Its creation was new territory and departments had to learn to work together. Safety was a worry and members, those of whom were civil servants, raised concerns. The act addressed this by protecting the identities and images of those in its employ, making it a criminal offence to identify those in protection under the act. Barry Galvin, the chief legal officer, would be given the unenviable honour of becoming the first citizen in Ireland to be allowed carry a firearm. He was also afforded armed guard protection. Detective Superintendent Felix McKenna would be second in command under Murphy and both selected their supporting teams. Felix McKenna was very familiar with Gilligan, working to secure his previous convictions. The Criminal Assets Bureau was born in July of 1996, and although it would have to wait until October 15th of the same year to have its powers enacted to freeze assets, this did not hamper the immediate effort being made to stop Gilligan. On the same day Cab came into being, the Operation Pineapple team, spearheaded by Kevin Carthy, raided Gilligan's home at Jesbrook and seized financial documents to be forwarded to the Criminal Assets Bureau. It was calculated that in the year 94-95 alone, the Gilligans owed £2.5 million in unpaid taxes. An assessment was drawn up and signed... Criminal Assets Bureau and sent to Gilligan at his Jesbrook residence. We will look at the effect the Criminal Assets Bureau had in relation to this investigation a little later on. While the police had made upper level personnel changes, the ground investigation was charging full steam ahead. Chief Superintendent Tony Hickey would be the man tasked with leading the investigation into Veronica's murder. Lucan Garda station would be his base. Hickey was an experienced Garda and a graduate of the FBI Academy in Virginia and was trained to organise a major crime investigation, the same successful system as used by Scotland Yard. 30 detectives were working on the case within weeks, assisted by around a 100 officers. It would be the largest operation of its kind to date and no stone would be left unturned. The scene was examined and documented A list of suspects was drawn up. House calls were made and conferences and meetings were a frequent occurrence to give updates to everyone involved in the investigation at senior level. The pressure was on 12 unsolved gangland murders had occurred in Dublin in the previous 24 months and the public demanded answers. Key pieces of evidence were examined. To start, forensic analysis was being carried out on the bullets used in the murder the bullets were found to be reloaded, which meant that someone had illegally reloaded them. As a result, a separate Garda operation called Mauser was conducted to find the maker of the reloaded bullets. A later second operation called Mauser 2 was also established. Both were successful. The Guardi arrested and questioned known hunters and others with an interest in guns concerning the bullets. Alongside the main gear investigation, the Mauser operations would be fruitful recovering over 80 illegal firearms. The motorbike used in the killing would be another piece of vital evidence. A breakthrough came about when a man walking by the banks of the River Liffey not far from the Lucan Garda station would see a motorbike in the river. He called the Gardaí to come investigate, and when they did, they could not find the bike and they did not alert the gear and investigation team. The man returned to the same area a week later and saw the bike again, pulling it from the water this time himself. The gear and investigation team was alerted on this occasion, and the bike was taken to the Garda Technical Bureau. The motorbike was not in one piece. It had been cut up and would have to be rebuilt. At that point, it was not known if the bike was the one used in the killing, but nonetheless, it was a step forward in the investigation. The investigation team put together a list of motorbikes reported stolen in Dublin. Once rebuilt, the motorbike was traced to an Ian Keith. Ian had reported his bike stolen shortly before Veronica's murder. At this juncture, the investigating team were making fast progress, interviewing an extensive list of criminals. Their tactic was to cover all possibilities. Most of those brought in gladly provided alibis, showing a willingness to distance themselves from what they thought was a step too far and were immediately ruled out. Others went further than that, making sure to direct the investigation towards one criminal and his gang. The guardie didn't just question individual gang members, but targeted their families too. Early morning arrests were common and innocent civilians somehow connected to a gang member were brought in. As a result, over 330 people were arrested with interviews and statements making up a number totalling around 5,000. With such an aggressive police investigation came with it the anticipation of an equally aggressive retaliation. Threats were not dismissed lightly, and the guardie responded by maintaining constant armed security, using bomb-proof safes and having extra patrols on hand to deal with any incidents which may arise. The investigation team were armed so too those manning the incident room at Lucan Station, which remained open 24-7. Coming up, we delve deeper into Gilligan's gang and meet some of the others who played a pivotal role in the drug gang's operations. Folcher Arash, or welcome back. In part one, we discussed John Gilligan and John Traynor, the two senior members of Gilligan's gang. We also met their appointed Cork contact, the man responsible for overseeing the importation and subsequent travelling of the imported narcotics, John Dunn. These three men did not act alone, and while there were many criminals operating within the drug network, we will focus on others who became important figures to the Gearn investigation, and subsequent trials. We will begin with a man named Russell Warren. Russell Warren was John Gilligan's latest bagman, having taken over from Dennis Meredith, who wanted to step back from Gilligan's dealings. As bagman, Russell dealt with the cash for the gang, counting and sorting the money and exchanging a portion of it to foreign currency in Amsterdam to pay Gilligan's European supplier. Simon Roman, when required. At first, he took instruction from the bookie before taking over the role in full. For his part, Russell was paid a sum for each trip he would make. The amounts Warren exchanged were substantial. In the first seven months of 1996, Russell Warren exchanged close to £4 million on behalf of Gilligan. Warren was seen to be the weak link of the gang by the investigation team and a decision was made to place him under full-time surveillance. His alibi for the day of the murder had not been corroborated. He claimed to have been out shopping with his wife and then went drinking in a pub in Rathgar. But no records backed this up, and his arrival to the pub was found to be after 3 p.m. It was business as usual since Veronica Guerin's murder for Gilligan's gang and Warren remained as Gilligan's bagman. Warren traveled to London, Dover and Calais to hand over cash. Although he did not know it at the time, Warren was not alone. The National Surveillance Unit had been monitoring him closely and observed his dealings. The team decided to not yet arrest him, instead monitoring his movements closely to get a better insight into the gang's operations. On September 29th, Warren went to work, collecting a bag with over £70,000 cash from a fellow gang member, Dutchy Holland. On the evening of September 30th, Russell went to the 108 pub in Rathgar with his wife and a friend. Detective Sergeants John O'Driscoll and Fergus Trainer, and 10 officers were waiting close to the pub and received orders from Todd O'Loughlin that a decision was made to arrest Warren. The National Surveillance Unit had plain clothed officers in the pub and when the sergeants entered, they were informed that Warren was in the toilet. Warren was arrested under Section 30 of the Offences Against the State Act 1939 on suspicion of being in possession of information relating to a scheduled offence, namely the possession of a firearm at the Nace Road and Boot Road on June 26, 1996. His wife and friend were also arrested. At the same time, another team found the cash that Holland had handed over the day prior, while also arresting Warren's parents, Patrick and Yvette, who helped Russell count the cash, his sister Nicola and her husband Brian Cummins. Their homes were also searched. After his arrest, Warren gave details about how he worked as Gilligan's bagman. On October 1st, Warren gave his first statement to Detective Garda Bernie Hanley, a regarded investigator working in the investigation section at Garda headquarters. In November 1997, Warren was sentenced to five years imprisonment for the charges brought against him after pleading guilty. He would serve his time in Arbor Hill prison and would be placed on protection while incarcerated. Warren would become an important component in the state's case against those who would face trial for Veronica Guerin's murder. In doing so, he would become a witness for the state and in return for his evidence in the various trials that preceded. Warren would not be prosecuted for the murder of Veronica Guerin. The next member of the gang we will look at is Dublin born Charles Bowden. With no convictions under his belt, he was an unknown figure to the public and Garda alike. Having received military training, he was disciplined and fit. Born in 1964, he dropped out of school before his intermediate cert, eventually signing up with the defense forces in 1983. Unusual to some of the criminal origin stories, which are typical for Bowden's demographic, Bowden was seen to have a bright future ahead of him. After 16 weeks of basic training with the defense forces, Bowden completed another six weeks to become a three star private. He had an interest in martial arts, winning an all army karate competition three times. He would marry a woman named Anna Thompson, who would give birth to their three sons. At the age of 22, Bowden would be promoted to the rank of corporal, having been selected by the army for promotion. However, his rise in the army would not last and Bowden was demoted after injuring recruits. He was tasked with training when he and another corporal drunkenly challenged them to a fight leading to recruits sustaining injury. He decided to leave the army in 1989. His marriage subsequently collapsed and he moved out of the family home. With his career and finances in ruin, Bowden would have to find another way of making money. Initially, he found work as a bouncer, but after he joined a kickboxing club in Buckingham Street, he became acquainted with a man named Peter Fatso Mitchell. Bowden subsequently ended up working for Mitchell and began to distribute drugs on his behalf. Bowden returned to school in 1993 for a brief stint, and ceased drug activity until 1994, when he reached out to Mitchell again for work. With Gilligan's operations now in full swing, Charlie Bowden picked a ripe time to rejoin in the sale of narcotics. Having first taken the risk in storing the goods in his own apartment, Bowden then rented out three lockups over the course of his dealings for Gilligan. One at Emmett Road in Inchicore, another at Calmore Industrial Estate, and the final one at Greenmount Industrial Estate. Charles Bowden would become Gilligan's chief distributor. After Veronica's murder, Charles Bowden was also placed under surveillance as a part of the ongoing investigations. On October 5th, 1996, Bowden was due to fly to London. The police feared that he would go into hiding. On that morning, The Gardaí made their move and at 6am entered his home at the paddocks and arrested him. His partner, Julie Bacon, was also arrested, along with his brother an hour later, who turned up to his house to give him a ride to the airport. The home was searched. Both cash and cocaine were found. When his brother Michael's home was searched, cash was also found. The arrest would be the breakthrough in the case that the Gardaí were searching for. After refusing to talk at first, Bowden was introduced to Bernie Hanley and Detective Inspector John O'Mahony. He denied knowing any of the names put to him. Those names included other suspected gang members, Brian Meehan, Paul Ward and Peter Mitchell. When O'Mahony put to Bowden that there was phone contact between the men in question, he eventually cracked and admitted to knowing them. Later that night, the guardie brought Bowden out to his shop on Moore Street in North Inner City, Dublin. In the same journey, he showed the officers a friend's apartment, which contained cash. An hour later, the cops would search the apartment to find around 100,000 pounds cash in both punts, or Irish pounds, and sterling, UK pounds. This was not the only breakthrough to happen that night. The Greenmount lockup was exposed by another prisoner and the guardie wasted no time in obtaining a search warrant and sending surveillance teams to set up camp outside. On the following Sunday afternoon, a team was sent to search the warehouse. Inside 47 kilos of hash, a substance for mixing cocaine, weighing scales, cardboard boxes with shipping labels placed on them by Gilligan's European suppliers, Martin Baltus and Simon Roman and false driver's licences were discovered. The most important find would be the weekly delivery sheet, which had the information for the gang's customers, along with the quantity of drugs that were to be supplied to them. A set of keys would eventually be found after a search of Charlie's home, and they would match the locks belonging to the Greenmount warehouse. Bowden, meanwhile, was keeping the line that he was just involved with the drugs and had nothing to do with the murder. Hanley and O'Mahony knew about Greenmount and decided to use it as leverage against Bowden's insistence in withholding any further information. Three hours later, Bowden had told all to the investigators. He admitted to cleaning the gun prior to the murder and hiding it in a graveyard. He described the bullets as being reloaded. He went on to name Dutchie Holland as the gang member he believed to be the hitman. On Tuesday, October 8, 1996, Bowdoin was dictating his statement to the police. Later that night, he would show them to a Jewish graveyard on Old Court Road. The guardee were being shown the gang's arsenal. With Bowden's account of events, the picture of the gang's operations was becoming more clear. He identified the property found at Greenmount and the property found at the graveyard. On September 4th, 1997, Bowden pleaded guilty in a hearing relating to charges of drugs and arms offences. He was in custody in Arbour Hill prison and put into isolation. He was given around the clock protection. On October of the same year, he was sentenced to six years imprisonment. Bowden at this point, maybe in prison, but his role in the Gearin murder prosecutions was far from over. He would become a key witness in the trials of some of his other peers, and although his evidence would face extreme scrutiny in the court of law, he would ultimately receive an immunity for his role in Veronica's murder, like Russell Warren, and would go on to become one of the state's first protected witnesses, otherwise known as a supergrass. Now we turn our focus to a gang member named Patrick Eugene Holland, otherwise known as Dutchy or the Whig. Unlike Bowden, Holland was well known as a criminal to the Garda and was linked to many past crimes. He was pointed out by Charles Bowden as being the hitman who pulled the trigger on Veronica Guerin. Dutchy was born on March 12, 1939, and grew up in Chapelizod, a village located in West Dublin. In his late teens, Duchy emigrated to the US and joined the United States Marine Corps, spending a few years there before coming back home in the early 1960s. Holland gained employment as an assistant manager in the Donnelly Sausage Plant in inner city Dublin. His return home would see Holland's first foray into criminality, and he would receive his first conviction in March 1965 for receiving stolen goods. Duchy claimed to have been set up. He was given two fur coats to hold onto in safekeeping, with Gardy arriving shortly after to look for them and finding them in Holland's car. Whether or not he was telling the truth, one thing we do know is that the incident left Duchy with a distaste for the authorities. Fast forward to the 1970s, and along with marrying his wife, Holland would begin committing serious crime. Unlike some of the others we have discussed so far, who operated with a pack-like mentality, Holland preferred to operate alone in the beginning of his newfound career. The mid-seventies would see several banks, at least a dozen, being raided by a male figure matching Duchy's description, who did not have any apparent assistance. The law would catch up with him. In 1975, Duchy was charged with a robbery at the Bank of Ireland on Marion Road, and another at the Matter Hospital. On December 29, 1976, Holland, this time teaming up with John and Michael Cunningham, raided the Carlton cinema, now the Savoy, on O'Connell Street. Getting away with £13,500 in cash, the whole would not be in their possession long, as detectives arrested the Cunningham's two days later on New Year's Eve. In a search of the Cunningham's house, the guns used in the attack, along with cash, would turn up. January 3, 1977, would see all three men charged with armed robbery. Duchy failed to appear in Dublin's district court for the remand hearing, and a warrant was issued for his arrest on February 7th. Holland, alongside his wife, fled the country to the US, staying in Chicago, Illinois. For two years, Holland would stay out of the reach of the authorities by remaining outside their jurisdiction. But Holland, with his wife, decided to return to Ireland for a wedding in 1981. Although Dutchy returned for a wedding, he decided to turn his mini-break into a work trip. May 2nd, 1981, would see Holland holding up the commercial banking company at College Green in Dublin, exiting with cash to the tune of 4,200 punts. Not satisfied with that haul, the Berkeley Court Hotel would become his next target, and Holland walked out with a larger sum than his earlier hit, adding £13,000 to his total. But it would be his third and final target that would see his largest acquisition, this time forcing a courier delivering payroll cash to hand over £22,000. With almost £40,000 in his possession, Holland and his spouse were ready to escape the country once more and make their way back to America. The Gardi were already on the case, and it wouldn't take long before Duchy was identified. The force were on patrol to find their man and the police were tipped off about his escape plan. Holland was due to take a ferry from Rosslare and County Wexford to France. From there, he would make his way to catch a flight to Boston, Massachusetts. He was not alone and was accompanied by his wife, Angela, his mother-in-law and Angela's nephew. And the group were intercepted by Gardaí at Rosslare Harbour and brought in for questioning. Duchy himself was found to be in possession of a fake passport and 12,000 pounds in cash. In a search of a temporary address in Sandy Mount which Holland had been using, firearms were found, including a .357 magnum revolver, machine gun, and smoke grenades, alongside other ammo. Holland would not make it back to the US. On July 17, 1981, Holland received convictions for the three robberies and was sentenced to seven years imprisonment, serving five. He was released in the summer of 1986. Upon his release, Dutchie was living with his wife on Sherrod Street in Dublin's inner city. In late 1988, police observed a senior IRA member visiting the home of Holland, which was under guard of surveillance. A new connection was made between the paramilitary group and the convicted criminal. March 1989 would see Holland housing Michael Anthony Maughan, another convicted criminal whom Dutchie had met while serving time. Both men would concoct plans to go on a spate of robberies. To do so, they needed ammunition. Holland had already been in contact with a provisional IRA member with a view to securing guns. Mon decided to use a contact, Patrick Waters, who he knew could acquire explosives. A trade was agreed upon between Holland and the IRA, on April 5, 1989, Mon and his contact acquired the explosives to be used in the trade by raiding the Origna coal mines in County Roscommon. The stolen explosives were transported to Dutchies' residence for safekeeping in preparation for the trade. Holland was unaware of the police presence that was closely monitoring the operation. A mix of personnel from the Special Detective Unit and the Serious Crime Squad, under the command of Detective Superintendent Noel Conroy, and Detective Inspector Tony Hickey. Aware that the explosives were waiting in Duchy's house to be used for the upcoming trade, the Gardaí made their move once the IRA representative arrived to the house close to 2.30pm, and Holland, Waters, Mon, and the provisional IRA member, Michael O'Reilly, were all arrested under the Offences Against the State Act. On June 26, 1989, Holland, Waters and Mon pleaded guilty to the charge of unlawful possession of the explosives. Michael O'Reilly pleaded not guilty, but was found guilty by the court. Justice Robert Barr imposed what he called an exemplary sentence to the men supplying the IRA with explosives, and the three men were given 10 years imprisonment. O'Reilly, for his part, was given 12. On appeal, the men had three years shaved off their sentences. Holland served his sentence in Portleash Prison and was released in September 1994 at age 55, having served five years in total. Patrick Eugene Holland was arrested in connection with the Veronica Guerin murder by Detective Garda Marion Cusack in April 1997. The arrest itself was an issue brought before the court. His counsel argued that his solicitor had been arrested shortly after Holland's arrest, therefore depriving Dutchie of the right to see his solicitor. His solicitor, Jim Orange, was arrested in connection with the sale of Patrick Holland's house as the home was bought and sold in February 97 with the intention to disguise ownership to avoid seizure by the cab. Holland's team argued that this violated his constitutional rights. A trial within a trial was held and having determined that Holland was not deprived of his constitutional right to a solicitor, he could have a solicitor, just not one of his choosing. The trial would resume in earnest. Although Holland was arrested in connection with Guerin's murder. Ultimately, he would not be charged with it, despite being identified by Garda Cusack as the man the Gardee suspected of shooting Girin. There was a lack of evidence against him. The murder weapon to date had not been found instead. Dutchie was on trial facing charges of possession and distribution of cannabis resin. Charles Bowden, who we discussed earlier, would give evidence for the first time as a supergrass or state's witness. Bowden identified Holland as a person named on one of the customer lists found at Greenmount Industrial Estate. Holland, in his evidence, denied receiving cannabis resin from Bowden. The trial lasted two weeks, and on November 27, 1997, Patrick Holland was found guilty on drugs charges. The next day, he was sentenced to 20 years imprisonment, backdated to the day of his arrest on April 9th, 1997. The next member of the Gilligan gang was Brian Meehan or Meaner, as he was also called. Meehan was born on April 7, 1964 in Crumlin, Dublin and was raised by his grandmother in the city centre Dublin Corporation Flats in Fatima Mansions, an area renowned for drug addiction. Meehan himself managed to avoid this fate, but was widely considered within the criminal fraternity to be a dangerous and fearless criminal. His first conviction came at age 16, and like others we have already looked at, he avoided time and was out on probation. Cars were his first attraction and many of his run ins with the law in his early years were as a result of car theft and driving without insurance at one stage receiving a ban of 15 years from driving. Meehan's liking for fast cars earned him the attention of other criminals and his driving skills were put to use in armed robberies. Michael Jojo Kavna, and the general were the first to avail of his services and by 1987 this iteration of a gang were making their hits. Buckley's Builders Providers in Clondawken provided an opportunity for the criminals and their target was a security van which entered the yard. Three armed men forced one of the security men to open the rear door and they took £20,000 in cash. Buckley's alerted the authorities and as the gang made their getaway, they were intercepted by the Gardaí. Meehan was fearless towards the authorities. The criminals fired shots at the Gardaí their lives being spared due to luck in the form of misfires. One guard was shot in the arm in the incident, and despite a sizable investigation, nobody was charged for the raid. Just two weeks later, Meehan and the gang would return to business as usual. On March 5, 1987, the men would set their sights on the Ringsend bus depot. A security van had brought payroll cash to the premises and four men entered the depot, and exited with £49,000 worth of cash. An armed detective was on site and confronted the gang, firing shots at them. The gang refused to put down their guns. One of the gang was injured and later two of the men would be arrested and charged with robbery. On December 21, 1987, the Allied Irish Bank on Grafton Street was held up by the criminals and they made away with £55,000 in cash in broad daylight. Kavna and Meehan were immediately suspected, and the police placed them under watch. The guardee decided to charge only Brian Meehan for the heist, and led by Tony Hickey, Meehan was brought in for questioning on December 28, 1987. Meehan knew that to be incarcerated now would mean potentially severe sentencing, given the charges against him were for firearms. To date, he had spent relatively small spells in prison for theft. To minimise disruption to the gang's efforts, he decided to attempt to bargain with the guardee by giving information as to the whereabouts of weapons used in other crimes. He remained out on bail. Meehan was involved in another armed robbery in Powers Court Estate in County Wicklow. The gang made off with a safe after taking a manager hostage and made their way in a stolen van to Crone Forest, where they came across Detective Garda Pat Keane, who was lying in the bushes as a part of another undercover operation. Keane saw Meehan through the driver's door and the robbers took off with Garda Keane opening fire on them. While charges were not brought against Meehan for robbery. In this instance, he did receive a charge for driving without a license. Meehan remained undeterred and this time was involved in a robbery at the Dublin Drug Company located in Glasnevin Industrial Estate, north side of Dublin city centre pharmaceuticals in the region of half a million pounds were lifted. Meehan was brought in, but this time the serious crime squad threatened to charge him with firearms offences in relation to the weapons that he had previously disclosed. Meehan, in an attempt to stay out of prison, offered to assist the Gardaí in recovering the hall and to grass out other assailants. Brian Meehan was placed into custody but decided to walk out of prison by pretending to be another prisoner who was said to be released that day. The Guardie did not immediately re-arrest him, instead opting to keep a close eye on his movements. Meehan continued to pass on information to the Gardaí and tipped them off about a planned raid on the Irish Permanent Branch in Phibsborough. The raid was not executed. Meehan was wasn't of use on the outside, so it was decided to return him to Mountjoy Prison. In April 1989, on trial in the Central Criminal Court, Meehan pleaded guilty to the AIB raid on Grafton Street and was given six years in prison to be served in Mountjoy prison. In the summer of 1990, while back in Mountjoy, Meehan was involved in a prison protest against the conditions the prisoners were living under at the facility. The protest turned into a riot with Meehan as leader. Millions of pounds worth of damage was caused and Meehan was transferred to Portleesh Maximum Security Prison. It would be here that Meehan would intersect with Dutchie Holland and John Gilligan, starting the foundations of what would become Gilligan's gang. He was granted temporary release in 93, getting full release in 94. So where did Meehan fall in connection with Gearan's murder? Brian Meehan was suspected of driving the motorbike used in the killing of the journalist. Meehan's arrest in connection with the murder of Veronica Geerin took place on October 11, 1996 in Amsterdam. After Geerin’s murder, he made his way to various countries around Europe, staying out of Ireland and steering clear of the investigation. The Gardaí had contacted the authorities in Holland and asked them to arrest Meehan, who was on his way to meet his girlfriend, who had flown over from Ireland. John Traynor, who we met in part one, and who was Veronica Gieren's main informant in connection with the criminal underworld, was known to be in Amsterdam, also laying low. However, on this occasion, he was accompanying Holland. Two men with the Lucan Garda squad were on site and identified Meehan as the correct target to the Dutch authorities. Brian Meehan, Meehan's girlfriend and trainer were all arrested at Central Station, while the latter two were released without charge. Brian Meehan was extradited back to Ireland, and would face charges relating to the murder of Veronica Gearan. Two other names involved in Gilligan's gang, which we must mention, are Paul Hippo Ward and Peter Fatso Mitchell. Ward was a former neighbour and close friend of Meehan, who earned his first conviction at age 15 for malicious damage. Unlike the other gang members we have discussed so far, Paul had issues with drug dependency himself, in particular heroin. Ward was incarcerated after receiving a sentence of four years for the armed robbery of a bookies in Crumlin village, located on the south side of Dublin city. He was sent to Mount Joy, where he was reunited with Meehan and was also moved to Portlaoise prison for taking part in the Mount Joy riot in 1990. Paul Ward was the man suspected by Gardee as the member of the gang who received and disposed of the murder weapon and motorbike used in the attack on Veronica Gearan. Ward was arrested at 3.30 p.m. on October 16, 1996, under Section 30 of the Offences Against the State Act 1939, on suspicion that he had information concerning firearms on the day of Veronica's murder. Peter Mitchell was another member of the gang. Born in 1969, Mitchell, or Fatso as he was nicknamed, grew up in Summerhill in Dublin's north inner city. Helping his mother selling at the stalls on Moore and Henry streets, Mitchell was otherwise a career criminal and received several convictions for burglary, amongst others. Mitchell met Meehan in Mountjoy prison, and their association was solidified. He did not serve the same spell in prison as the others at that time, and it was Mitchell who was one of the first to change his business model from thievery to the sale of narcotics. In part one, we discussed Veronica's dealings with John, the coach trainer, and how their relationship was fractured when Veronica threatened to expose Trainer by writing about him in the Sunday Independent. Trainer had been successful in obtaining an interim injunction to stop the publishing of such an article, but July 1st was the next hearing date. The result of this hearing was that the injunction was granted by the court and the Sunday Independent was prevented from publishing the story. On the day itself, Trainer was nowhere to be seen. And Veronica, of course, was prevented from defending herself and the integrity of her work. As we already touched upon when looking at Brian Meehan, the coach decided to flee Ireland and head to mainland Europe to lay low. In July 1996, he made his way to Portugal and then on to Holland. It is believed he split his time in residence between Holland and Spain. Finally, we will look at the arrest of John Gilligan, at this stage, Russell Warren was out of action, and with the availability of his gang decreasing, Gilligan would be forced to travel large quantities of cash himself. On October 5, 1996, Gilligan flew from Heathrow to Amsterdam and back again. The next day, on October 6th, Gilligan was met by a criminal who handed over a substantial amount of cash. The plan was that Gilligan and the other man were to board a flight to Amsterdam with the money. A journey that had been executed many times by Gilligan and his associates in the past without any trouble. At this point, police customs in several EU countries, namely Holland, Belgium, France and Britain were keeping a close watch on Gilligan and the suspected gang members in partnership with Irish officers. The customs officials in Manchester were ready to swoop on Gilligan in Heathrow Airport and the Gilligan investigation team back in Ireland were made aware. Gilligan was carrying a six-figure sum in a briefcase, and while he wasn't arrested on the spot, he was asked to wait while inquiries were being made. Shortly after 2pm, Gilligan was arrested by H.M. Customs on suspicion of laundering money derived from the proceeds of crime. Two days after his arrest, Gilligan was brought before the Uxbridge Magistrates' Courts and charged with an offence under Section 491, of the Drugs Trafficking Act 1994, laundering money received from the sale of narcotics. The money found on Gilligan was to be held, and Gilligan was remanded to Belmarsh Maximum Security Prison in London. After a slew of legal challenges, which lasted years, finally, on February 3, 2000, Gilligan was extradited back to Ireland to face the music on his home soil. He was taken to the Special Criminal Court a court many of his former gang, the gang he once led, had already visited in connection with the Guerin homicide. As we have seen, the Guerin investigation brought about the Criminal Assets Bureau, but it also brought about another first, the introduction of a witness protection scheme, already seen in other jurisdictions at that time. In July 1997, Charles Bowden and Russell Warren were given immunity against conviction by the Director of Public Prosecutions, the families of the protected men were also to be covered by the program. John Dunn, the Cork contact, would also turn State's Witness and be afforded the same protections. The men would be kept in the basement of Arbour Hill Prison, separate from the other prisoners, some of whom would be chomping at the bit to permanently silence the men. They would each come to be known as a supergrass or a criminal who turned against their former gang members to give evidence to their detriment, in return for state protection and immunity from prosecution in the Girin murder. In essence, it would be a chance at a new life, free from their criminal pasts, at the cost of the taxpayer, once they were freed after serving time for other offences on which they received convictions. The Department of Justice was satisfied that the scheme, operated successfully in other countries, should be used in this case. Gilligan and his cronies had used intimidation to scare witnesses before, but the stakes were much higher this time. The country was watching, and to catch the men responsible would take some blindsiding by new tactics. Coming up after the break, we delve into the trials of the men connected to the Giran murders. With Gilligan behind bars in England, the trials back in Ireland got underway. The first trial we will look at is the trial of Paul Ward, a member of Gilligan's gang and vital to the operations as a distributor. It commenced on October 6, 1998 in the Special Criminal Court and would run for 31 days. The court was presided over by three judges. The Special Criminal Court did not have a jury to avoid attempts at intimidation or bribery. To open, the court considered eyewitness accounts and forensic evidence, which gave a more detailed account on what happened at the crime scene. Two nurses, Brenda Grogan and Michelle Wall, were on the Nace dual carriageway at the time of the murder and described the scene that they saw. Grogan immediately checked for a pulse, but could not find one. A truck driver named Michael Dunn gave an account of seeing the motorbike pull up alongside the car. He witnessed a driver's window being smashed with an implement pulled from the assailant's jacket. The Guarded Technical Bureau's Detective Sergeant Patrick Ennis, who worked in the ballistic section, was at the site soon after the shooting and described the scene, remarking that Veronica's upper body and car seats were heavily bloodstained. The mobile phone power cable was wrapped around her lower left arm. An examination of the mobile phone itself would reveal that the last number dialed was redialed. Girin had been shot with six bullets fired from a handgun, specifically a .357-inch Magnum revolver. He detailed that the types of bullets were semi-wad cutters. A semi-wad cutter is a flat-nosed type of bullet typically used for hunting. When examined under a microscope, the bullets were found to be reloaded. The state pathologist, Dr. John Harbison, who had been on other business the day Veronica was killed and ultimately the last to visit the scene, detailed the cause of death. Eight wounds were found on her body, caused by entry and exit of bullets, as well as small lacerations caused when the window was smashed. He explained that her death was a result of shock and hemorrhage, caused by an injury to the right subclavicle artery and laceration of both lungs. Each bullet caused different damage. The main cause of damage was presumed to have been from a bullet entering the lower part of her mastoid muscle. Her subclavical artery was lacerated and torn and was the main cause of bleeding. Another bullet, shot from below, fractured her left collarbone. A litre of blood was found in her left chest cavity. Her right lung was lacerated after a bullet passed through the lower lobe. With Dr. Harbison observing, that he felt the same bullet had passed through her liver. A further two bullets entered through her back, another through her arm into her breast and crossing her chest. The case against Ward was built on the receiving of the firearm and motorbike used in the attack and his subsequent disposal of them. Evidence given by Charles Bowden purports to establish that the accused was an accessory before the fact of Veronica Guerin's murder. His counsel counter argued that his detention was unlawful. Ward was arrested at 3.30pm on October 16, 1996, under Section 30 of the Offences Against the State Act, 1939, on suspicion that he had information concerning firearms on the day of Veronica's murder. Barry White, Ward's counsel, argued that he had been arrested on October 8 for the same offence, which would invalidate the subsequent arrest. It was also argued that his detention contravened custody regulations. Ward was not new to being arrested and maintained a wall of silence when questioned. Along with asking for a solicitor, he also asked for a doctor. A doctor's report would be admissible as evidence in his trial, and a check for physical damage would protect him in the event of sustaining injury while being detained. Ward was a heroin addict and knew that he would not be able to obtain a supply when in custody but a doctor could also prescribe Fiseptone, which would help alleviate any withdrawal symptoms which Ward may experience. He was granted both, and his solicitor immediately advised him of his right to silence. A police doctor, Dr. Lionel Williams, examined him and determined that the subject was not in withdrawal, but in any event, prescribed one dose of Fiseptone should the accused require it to be held by the Gardee. The accused was interviewed in total for 14 and a half hours over five sessions. In all of that time, the accused did not respond to any questions, invoking his right to silence. The guardie decided to interrupt one of the sessions on the second day, and a meeting took place between Paul Ward and his partner Vanessa Meehan, who was also being detained, which lasted roughly 10 minutes. Upon returning to the interview room, Paul's interrogation was continued by Sergeant Lina, and Garda Dillon. It was in this session of interviewing that Ward allegedly spoke, admitting to getting rid of the gun and the bike. In other words, an admission of guilt to being an accessory before the fact. There was another unusual event which the court had to consider, this time involving Paul's 74-year-old mother, Elizabeth Ward. Mrs. Ward was brought from Cabra Station to Lucan Station for the purpose of visiting her son, a visit which neither Paul or his mother had requested. The meeting took place within minutes of her arrival, and Paul was distressed as both his mother and father had been arrested under section 30, and he was concerned regarding the stress that this would bring, especially his father, who was in poor health. Their meeting would last 15 minutes, after which time the accused would return to interrogation from Healy and Clancy. Ward spoke again, complaining that his mother had been told that he was on heroin. The two interrogators switched their questioning to the gun. They asked where it was, as they wanted to make sure no one would be killed with it again. With Ward responding, Nobody will ever be killed by the gun where it is now. He was then asked, Where did the gun come from? And he replied, You know well where it came from. It was with the guns and ammunition you got in the graveyard. The court found both meetings amounted to a conscious and deliberate disregard of the accused's basic constitutional right to fair procedures and treatment while in custody. Another alarming feature relating to events during the period of the accused's detention at Garda Station is the extraordinary fact that a number of significant documents are now alleged to be unaccountably missing. In all the circumstances, the court is satisfied that in the interest of justice and fairness, all admissions allegedly made by the accused during the period of his detention at Luke and Garda Station must be ruled inadmissible. In simple terms, this means that any statements made by Ward, which Ward had denied making, while he was being questioned by Gardi could not be admitted as evidence. The Gardi's documents in relation to the interviews had also vanished. It was a blow to the prosecution's case. The court then turned its attention to the prosecution's second part of its case, the evidence of Charles Bowden. His credibility was central to the evidence being accepted. Bowden's evidence pinned Paul Ward as the person who got rid of the gun and motorbike, along with providing a safe house for the gang in the immediate aftermath of the murder. In its judgment, the court accepts without any doubt that Charles Bowden is a self serving, deeply avaricious and potentially vicious criminal. On his own admission, he is a liar and the court readily accepts that he would lie without hesitation and regardless of the consequences for others, if he perceived it to be in his own interest to do so. The court fully accepts that assessment of his evidence must be made with great caution and with the foregoing firmly in mind. Despite its reservations as to Bowdoin's character, The court found his evidence reliable in this instance, accepting that it had been corroborated and supported by the accused in evidence. Paul Ward was found guilty and was held by the court to be an accessory before the fact to the murder of Veronica Guerin. On November 27, 1998, he was handed a life sentence. But his story does not end there. Ward appealed his conviction for the murder which was heard in Dublin's Court of Criminal Appeal on Tuesday, March 5, 2002, and it ran for a four-day period. The main focus of the appeal centred on the credibility of Charles Bowden as a witness or supergrass. In examining his evidence, the court held that it considered the logic of his position, and that Bowden would lie and lie readily and unhesitatingly to protect his own interests, irrespective of the consequences of others. A part of the original court judgment centred around the disposal of the murder weapon and vehicle. The appellant court held that the trial court could not have been satisfied that the bike and gun were delivered, as there wasn't express evidence to back that assertion up. On Friday morning of March 22, 2002, Paul Ward's conviction for the murder of Veronica Guerin was overturned. He remained in prison to serve out a sentence he received for his involvement in the riots at Mountjoy Prison in 1997, for which he was convicted in July 1999. He received a sentence of 12 years imprisonment and was released in 2005. The second trial we will examine is the trial of Brian Meehan. On June 2, 1999, Brian Meehan's trial would get underway in the Special Criminal Court and would last for 31 days. Russell Warren, State's Witness or Supergrass, would give evidence about the role he played in the events leading up to Guerin's murder. His initial duties under Gilligan's employ involved delivering contraband cigarettes from Belgium and Holland to Means' flat on a monthly basis from June to December 1995. After this, he moved on to collecting money due for drug deliveries in both Ireland and Belgium, which included counting and changing the money into different currencies. Most of his trips overseas would be through Amsterdam Airport. He gave evidence that he collected monies from Meehan, Peter Mitchell, Paul Ward and Patrick Holland, and those monies would be proceeds from the sale of illegal narcotics. The amounts would typically range from £100,000 to £250,000, but could go higher. Warren also gave evidence in relation to the motorbike used in the killing of the journalist. He, along with a friend, stole a 500cc motorbike in Dunleary from a Mr. Ian Keith in May 1996, the month prior to Veronica's murder. It was taken to a garage in Terranure Dublin, where it was stored. According to Warren, he wished to sell the bike, but when he told Gilligan he had it in his possession, he was told to hang on to it. One week before Veronica's murder, Russell met with Meehan and Gilligan and brought them to the garage where the bike was being kept, where they carried out an inspection and noticed that the indicators and number plates were missing. Gilligan ordered that Russell put the bike in roadworthy condition, and Russell claimed Gilligan threatened to kill him if any statements were made against him, to which Warren did not respond. Warren gave evidence of the work carried out on the bike. And most importantly, he identified the bike as the same one that was recovered from the River Liffey. When it was repaired, Warren informed Gilligan. The day before the murder, Meehan and Peter Mitchell arrived to test drive the bike. Meehan took the bike for a test drive, lasting about 10 minutes. Meehan noted the fuel cap was loose and should be fixed to stop petrol from leaking. It was at this point that Meehan asked if Warren knew Veronica Geeran, and after describing her, Russell advised Meehan that he did not and claims he was not told of any link between Gilligan and Veronica Geeran. On leaving, Meehan told him he would be back to pick up the bike in the morning. On the day of the killing, Meehan told Russell he would meet him at the garage in Terreneur. A second call was made to inform him that he was delayed. At 9.45, Meehan turned up to the garage, inspected the bike again, and said he would pick it up later. He also passed instruction to Russell Warren to go to Nace, with Warren assuming it was in connection with the bike. Meehan told Warren to be on the lookout for a red Opal sports car with a particular registration number somewhere around Nace Courthouse. Gilligan himself would contact Warren, reiterating his instruction to get to Nace. In this trial, Warren confirmed his mobile phone number and stated that he had obtained the phone in his father's name. The phone would be an essential tool in communication between those involved in the events of June 26, 1996. Once in Nace, Warren mistook the social welfare office for the courthouse and was directed by a guarder to the correct location. A traffic warden started to note down the details of the van in which Warren was travelling, as it had no valid road tax displayed. He parked around the corner and made his way towards the courthouse by foot. Warren received calls from Gilligan inquiring as to the location of Veronica's vehicle, and noted that he had not yet found it. He would go on to spot the vehicle, which emerged between the two pillars by the courthouse. Warren ran back to his van and started his pursuit of Gearn's Calibra. Next, he would receive a call from Meehan and as Warren approached the end of the Nace dual carriageway would inform Meehan that he could see the vehicle, hearing the motorbike engine in the background while the two were speaking. Warren went on to describe that his car was situated in the same lane as Veronica's, but a couple of cars back. The bike he had stolen passed him out on the road and came to the traffic lights, which were red. The passenger on the back of the bike proceeded to fire shots into the car. Warren, who claimed to be in shock, changed lanes in front of a driving school lorry, and then pulled over at Boot Road. He then called Gilligan, telling him that they had shot someone. Warren asked who it was. Gilligan replied, "It does not matter," and threatened him with the same fate if he opened his mouth. Russell Warren continued to work for the gang after Veronica Guerin's murder. It's important to note that Warren's account was his version of events, and the court was not blind to this fact noting that his account had been heavily challenged and criticised, and in particular, his account regarding the theft of the motorbike, which was suggested to have been at Gilligan's request. There was also a challenge as to his presence at Nace Courthouse. The court expressed its own concern that the evidence was to be approached with caution and reserve. Despite this, two pieces of evidence in the trial would lend weight to Warren's version of events. The evidence of Mrs. Marion Finnegan, was the first the court considered. On the morning of June 26th, Mrs. Finnegan saw a man dressed in a green jacket with a shirt collar coming out over the jacket, carrying a mobile phone in Nace Town, observing that he was peering around the corner of the street in the direction of the courthouse and using his mobile phone. This piece of vital evidence was accepted by the court as it was similar to the account given by Russell. The second piece of evidence considered by the court concerned telephone records which the court found backed up the evidence of Russell Warren. The court stated that it finds of particular significance the phone call made at 12.48, six minutes before the murder. This call would mesh in exactly with Russell Warren's evidence of the call which he had with Meehan, while Veronica Gearn was passing the air motor factory on the Nace Road. The court also went on to accept the evidence regarding Meehan's inspection of the motorcycle, the direction by him regarding the repairs, the subsequent road test and the collection of the motorcycle. It also accepted that Meehan directed Warren to go to Nace to watch, follow and report on the victim's car and the evidence relating to the call made using a hands-free kit in which the motorcycle could be heard. Finally, the court accepted that Meehan agreed to dispose of the motorbike. It wasn't just Russell Warren's evidence that the court considered. There was other circumstantial evidence which lent support to the prosecution's case. John Dunn, the other state's witness, was called upon to give evidence at Brian Meehan's trial. In part one, we discussed how John Dunn was involved in the overseeing of shipments of drugs coming into Ireland from Seabridge in County Cork, where they were transferred to a meeting point at a car park of a hotel outside Dublin. From there, they would be brought to the Greenmount premises the gang had been using, on frequent occasion by Meehan. When the premises had been searched in October 1996, the following items were found. A weighing scales, a series of lists of customers, a set of false and blank driving licences, a large quantity of slabs of cannabis resin, a timber box containing plastic bags, white powder and electronic weighing scales, a series of boxes which, on Sergeant Dennis's calculation, could accommodate approximately 150 slabs of cannabis resin, a camouflage pouch designed to carry a 9mm Parabellum Calibre machine pistol, a number of sports bags used by the gang for transporting drugs around in a way which did not display their contraband nature. A set of lists pinned to the wall indicating who's to get what. Three pairs of garden gloves and or working gloves. 25 cardboard boxes and matching lids and two half boxes used to transport cannabis through the Seabridge route in Cork. Dunn gave evidence of meeting Meehan on 10 or 12 occasions confirming that there were around 50 or 60 shipments in total between 1994 and 1996. He also identified the boxes in Greenmount as those which had passed through his own hands, going on to further state that multiple phone calls took place between the pair. John Dunn also identified me in during the course of the trial, which the court took as a form of recognition evidence. It is also worth noting that the other state's witness, Charles Bowden, also gave evidence at this trial. Unlike Warren's evidence, the court did not accept his account in relation to the murder charge, but did accept it in relation to the other charges. Bowden's account provided the guardie with the Jewish graveyard at Old Court Road location, which was the site of a large number of weapons, including a camouflage pouch containing a silencer for use with a machine pistol. This pouch was identical to the one found in the Greenmount lockup, on which Bowden's fingerprints were found. The court concluded that Brian Meehan was guilty on count number one, the murder charge, as he was a fundamental part of the conspiracy or plot to murder Veronica Gearn and was a full participant in the event. On the counts relating to drugs, he was convicted of the unlawful importation of controlled drugs on dates ranging between July 1st, 1994 and October 6, 1996. He was further convicted on counts 17 and 18 on possession and control of firearms or ammunition in circumstances that he did not have them in his possession or under his control for a lawful purpose. Meehan appealed his sentence to the Court of Criminal Appeal. It was relatively delayed, caused by the various appeals brought by John Gilligan. His legal team lodged an appeal on various grounds, but the court narrowed them down to three which they would consider. On the point of adequate corroboration, The Court of Criminal Appeal found that the various strands of evidence constituted corroboration on a whole. The telephone traffic, evidence of Marion Finnegan, and evidence from the driving instructor, Mr. Michael Kirby, who was instructing a driver in the lorry at the scene of the killing, which Warren had mentioned in his testimony. On the point of firearms and the submission that there was a lack of evidence, the appellate court dismissed the claim. On the point of telephone records, the Court of Criminal Appeal held machine-printed mobile phone records to be real evidence, and that there was direct evidence to prove the subscriber name, relevant number, and the identity of the user of the particular phone. The court also found it was clear that Brian Meehan, Russell Warren, and John Gilligan were all in contact through the course of the day of the murder. There was 39 calls logged. The first occurred at 8.15am, and the last at 10.32pm. The times of the calls aligned with Warren's testimony. With these findings, the Court of Criminal Appeal dismissed all the appeals against Brian Means' conviction. In 2016, 16 and a half years after his conviction, and 19 and a half years after the reporter's murder, Meehan's legal team applied to the Court of Appeal to have his conviction set aside as a miscarriage of justice. The question here came down to whether evidence used in a later trial of another individual connected to the offence was properly disclosed to Mean's legal team. The court found this not to be the case, no new facts had been discovered, and his legal team were fully appreciative of the significance of the material pointed out to this court, at least by the time he appealed to the Court of Criminal Appeal. His application was refused. The following year, in 2017, An appeal against this refusal was rejected by the Supreme Court. And finally, we look at the trial of the gang's boss, John Gilligan. John Gilligan's trial began on December 4, 2000, eight months after his return to Ireland at the Special Criminal Court. It would run for 43 days. He was indicted on 16 counts. The first count was on the murder of Veronica Guerin, the other 15 counts, Related to drugs and arms offences. The applicant was charged with offences of unlawful importation into the state of cannabis resin between July 1, 1994 and October 16, 1996. He pleaded not guilty to every one of the charges laid before him. The prosecution argued that it was Gilligan who determined that Veronica was to die, and that he planned her death, and the perpetrators of the crime were acting under his orders. In Gilligan's trial, all three state's witnesses and accomplices of Gilligan, John Dunn, Charles Bowden and Russell Warren gave evidence. The court had to consider the danger of convicting the applicant, relying on uncorroborated evidence of an accomplice. The court found that both Bowden and Warren were compromised witnesses, and considered their inconsistent and contradictory evidence. The court warned itself that it should have grave reservations when considering the truthfulness of any evidence given. They were deemed compromised because procedurally, the guardie failed to record some of the interviews between them and the state's witnesses. However, if there was corroboration, the court would be prepared to act on their evidence. When it came to John Dunn, the court acknowledged that although the defence did not seriously challenge his honesty, it would also require some corroboration. On the charge of Guerin's murder, Felix McEnroe, senior counsel, gave evidence that in the course of a telephone call between Guerin and Gilligan, he overheard Gilligan threatening the reporter, expressing that he would kidnap her son and sexually abuse him, and that he would kill her by shooting her. The court also accepted evidence from journalist Elizabeth Allen that in an interview she was conducting with Gilligan on July 1, 1996, five days after the killing, He made an admission that he had threatened the journalists and members of her family, but was angry and did not mean them. He denied he had anything to do with the murder. The trial court also noted that before her death, Veronica had made a complaint to the Gardee, from which an assault case was being brought against the defendant. As a result of her murder, the case could not proceed. Russell Warren had also received threatening letters from Gilligan while he was serving time in Arbour Hill Prison. However, the suspicions these events may raise could not be enough to bring about a conviction. The court was satisfied that the only evidence on which it could rely was the evidence given by Russell Warren, but only if independently corroborated. Warren's evidence was strongly challenged by Gilligan's legal team, and the judges in the trial felt that there were contradictions in the evidence given here and the evidence given in Brian Meehan's trial. In Meehan's trial, as we discussed earlier, Phone records showed that Warren's phone placed a call to Gilligan's phone minutes after the murder. In this trial, the court did not accept that the mere placing of the call corroborated its contents. It did, however, accept that Warren was at the scene of the murder. The standard of proof required under Irish law to convict a person for murder is beyond all reasonable doubt. In this trial, that standard could not be reached, as the court had doubts and although there was grave suspicions looming over Gilligan and the part he may have played in the murder, the court's verdict was returned as not guilty. On March 15 2001, John Gilligan was acquitted of the murder of Veronica Guerin. Although Gilligan escaped conviction for the murder of Veronica Guerin, there were other charges to be determined. He was also charged with possession or control of firearms and ammunition with the intent to endanger life and with the intent to enable another person to endanger life. With regards to the firearms charges, the evidence that Charles Bowden gave concerned cartons found at the Jewish graveyard at Old Court Road. The issue here was determining the source of the firearms and ammo and linking them to Gilligan. That link was not established and John Gilligan was acquitted of the firearms charges. The last set of charges Gilligan faced were related to drugs offences. The court found that there was unchallenged evidence that in that time frame, Tekka Shipping Service had shipped goods labelled as spare parts from Holland to Cork. The goods were contained in sealed cartons, firstly made of timber and then later on cardboard. In turn, those were transported in fishing containers. The court was satisfied that John Dunn, under the umbrella of Seabridge Limited, was responsible for the importation into Ireland of over 100 consignments labelled spare parts, with an aggregate weight of approximately 20,000 kilos. John Dunn identified box types, labels and the binding of boxes which the Gardaí found at the premises at both Greenmont Industrial Estate and Emmett Road Inchicore, as similar to the ones that were used. Moreover, Dunn confirmed that the cartons carried by Teka Shipping Services, which arrived in Cork, were picked up by him or someone on his behalf and brought to the Ambassador Hotel in Nace. It was here he handed them over to two men, one named Joe, but who Dunn identified was actually Brian Meehan. Further evidence emerged from the trial that an independent courier, Dermot Cambridge, filled in for Dunn when he was on holidays. At the trial, Cambridge gave evidence to corroborate Dunn's version of events. Just as Dunn had done previously, Cambridge delivered the packages to two men. He identified the men as Charles Bowden and Shay Ward. Shea Ward was another member of Gilligan's gang, a brother of Paul Ward. In turn, Cambridge was handed an envelope which contained £1,000, which was addressed to Dunn. This figure was what John Dunn routinely received for each consignment. Bowden also gave evidence that he took Cambridge's van as, at times, his own van was too small to take the consignment. This fact was backed up by the courier, who received his van back, minus the packages. The finding of boxes by the guardie at Greenmount Industrial Estate and at a lock-up garage on Emmet Road were important to in the investigation. On searching the boxes at the location, the guardie found one box which was lined with foam and contained nine-ounce bars of cannabis resin. Detective Sergeant Patrick Ennis, a forensic ballistics expert, gave evidence that each box could potentially hold 150 slabs of cannabis resin. 26 cardboard boxes could hold almost 1,000 kilograms. Dr. Daniel O'Driscoll, a forensic scientist, gave evidence that 25 out of the 26 boxes found contained debris, and out of those, 22 contained traces of cannabis resin. Crucially, John Dunn's evidence was that it was Gilligan who had requested that he make arrangements for the importation of consignments of cartons of cannabis resin. Although it was just Dunn's word, the court saw him as credible and that there was no good reason to doubt the accuracy of his identification. The court, too, accepted John Dunn's evidence and some of Charles Bowden's evidence, specifically his collection of drugs from the Ambassador Hotel and delivery to whichever of the three lockups the gang were using. The finding of drugs when he opened up cartons and his leasing of the three premises as basis for distribution of narcotics. The court accepted his evidence and other independent evidence concerning Gilligan's gang, namely Charles Bowden, Paul Ward, Brian Meehan, Shea Ward and Peter Mitchell. They accepted that they were all well known to each other and would fraternize with one another. Gardamoran gave evidence that on October 1, 1996, he saw Bowden, Ward, Mitchell and Meehan have lunch together at a restaurant and afterwards, Bowden and Sheaward went into a shop beside it, exiting with a red yard brush and rolls of black refuse sacks. There was also video evidence of the wedding of Brian Meehan's sister in St. Lucia, which Gilligan, Mitchell and Sheaward also attended. In August 94, the Garda Siakana stopped a car driven by Meehan with Peter Mitchell in the passenger seat where the guardie found a sum in excess of £46,000 in cash. The court found John Gilligan guilty on 11 drug related offences, including counts of importing cannabis resin into the state between July 94 and October 96 and having the drug for sale and supply. He was sentenced to 28 years imprisonment, a new record for the state concerning drug offences. Gilligan attempted to appeal against conviction, but he failed. However, he was successful in his sentencing appeal. The Court of Criminal Appeal reduced his sentence to 20 years as the court felt it was disproportionate to those imposed on others involved. A further appeal to the Supreme Court failed insofar as it related to his convictions. Coming up after the break, we find out how the Criminal Assets Bureau hurt the pockets of the criminals involved, we see where the gang members are now, and finally we conclude on Veronica Guerin's legacy. Fulcher rash. While the and Investigation Unit had been working relentlessly to secure convictions for the men involved in the journalists' murder and or drugs and arms offences, the newly established Criminal Assets Bureau was also hard at work. Here's what they managed to recuperate from some of the Gilligan gang. Patrick Duchy Holland owned a dwelling house in British Bay County, Wicklow. The cab were successful in freezing the asset, where it was subsequently sold at public auction earning the state's central fund £350,000. Paul Hippo Ward. The safe house that was used in the immediate aftermath of the killing was identified as belonging to Paul Ward and was sold to satisfy his revenue debt. He also owned tracker bonds generated from sums earned through drug trafficking, which were also seized under the Proceeds of Crime Act. Brian Meener Meehan. The cab identified properties belonging to the convicted criminal. He owned a dwelling house in the Fairview-Summerhill area, which was divided into a block of flats and an apartment on the quays in the inner city. They also identified a bank account held in Vienna, which had substantial money lodged, in excess of £700,000 sterling. It was frozen by the High Court in Ireland and subsequently by the Austrian courts. John, the coach trainer was targeted by the taxation departments within the Criminal Assets Bureau. He owned a property in Waterford, which held about 15 apartments for which he was receiving rent payments. This asset was frozen and sold in satisfaction of his tax debt. And finally, John Gilligan. Gilligan had all his identified assets frozen by the High Court. The Jesbrook estate in County Kildare, which Gilligan had dreams of operating as a world-class equestrian centre, was seized and sold. It was split into four sections, with three of those being sold in 2014. Geraldine Gilligan had been living in a bungalow beside Jesbrook, but in 2017, Gilligan lost his Supreme Court appeal to keep that and two other houses, one situated in Blanchardstown, where his son had been living, and the other in Lucan, which was being rented out to tenants. In 2019, the Lucan house was sold, and Gilligan's daughter, Tracy, was to receive 20% of the sale price, as ordered by the High Court. In March 2021, Gilligan and his family lost their appeal to the European Court of Human Rights, after exhausting every other avenue in the Irish courts over many years. In this claim, the Gilligans sought a judgement, declaring that the confiscation and length of time the proceedings against their assets had taken in Ireland was a breach of their human rights. So where are they now? John, the coach trainer, was considered a suspect in the planning of the murder of Veronica Guerin. Having spent the day of her execution at Mondello Racetrack, Traynor managed to flip the car he was driving and was taken to hospital on his request. Nobody could question his proximity to the murder scene. Trainer would never be extradited back to Ireland to answer questions concerning Guerin's murder. His extradition would have had to have come off the back of sufficient evidence to bring a criminal prosecution against him which was not the case. In 2010, Trainer was arrested when stopped by Dutch police in the Amstelveen area of the Netherlands. He was found to be using a driving licence not belonging to him, but in his possession was a passport held in his own name. Two days after his arrest, he was brought before the court and his extradition warrant was read out to him. Trainer was subsequently extradited to Britain to serve the remainder of the seven-year sentence handed down to him and was released in September 2012. He took up residence in Margate, Kent. In 2013, Traynor spoke to the Sunday World newspaper and denied he was connected to Veronica's death, but said he would never return to Ireland as he would face prison time for unpaid taxes. He also claimed to be working on a book, which he wished to be published after his death. On October 24th, 2021, John Traynor died aged 73 in Kent, England, where he had been receiving palliative care following a cancer battle. Charles Bowden would be the first person in Ireland to enter the witness protection programme. Bowden was sentenced to six years imprisonment for firearms and drugs offences. For his part in giving evidence in the various trials relating to Gearin, he was granted immunity from prosecution in the murder. He was released on April 17, 2001, and it was reported that he had relocated abroad. Russell Warren had his hearing in front of Judge Kelly in November 1997 in relation to various drug-related offenses. He was the second person to enter the witness protection program. The former bagman was sentenced to 5 years in prison. In April 2001, Warren was released from Arbor Hill. His whereabouts is now publicly known as per the terms of the witness protection program. In January 1998, John Dunn was sentenced to three years imprisonment for importing cannabis resin through Seabridge in County Cork. Dunn served his time in Arbour Hill Prison in Dublin. He was the third person in the country to be placed into a witness protection programme for his part in becoming a witness for the prosecution in the Veronica Gearn murder cases. Dunn was released from prison in early 2001 and would have been given the option to assume a new identity as well as the option to move out of Ireland as a part of the Witness Protection Scheme. Brian Meehan, the criminal who drove the bike used in the murder of Veronica Gearn, was sentenced to life imprisonment and is the only person serving time for Gearn's murder currently. In the summer of 2021, after serving almost 22 years behind bars in Wheatfield Prison, Meehan was moved to Shelton Abbey Open Prison, situated near in County Wicklow, and is on a pre-release program. It was reported in December 2021 that Meehan applied for a three day temporary release for Christmas Eve, Christmas Day and St. Stephen's Day, but was refused by the parole board. No information is currently available as to when Brian Meehan will be scheduled for release. Patrick Dutchie Holland, the man suspected and identified by the Gardee to be the shooter in the Gearan murder, was sentenced to 20 years behind bars, which dropped to 12 years on appeal of which he served nine at Portleash prison. In May 2008, he was jailed in England for his part in a scheme to kidnap an English businessman for a 10 million pound ransom. In his sentencing, Judge Blacksell said to Holland, you are a man who has been associated with serious crime over a long period of time and have served long periods of imprisonment. You are reaching the end of your life, and it may be that you end it in prison. I know not. On June 19, 2009, Holland was found dead in his cell in Parkhurst prison on the Isle of Wight after suffering a heart attack at the age of 70. John Gilligan was released from Portleesh prison shortly after 9.30am on October 15, 2013, having spent 17 years behind bars on drugs offences at the age of 61. On March 1st, 2014, Gilligan survived an assassination attempt after being shot multiple times. It is thought the attempt on his life revolved around an old prison feud and was the second attempt on his life since his release from prison. Gilligan fled the country as a result, making his way to the UK. More recently, Gilligan was arrested in Alicante, Spain, following a joint operation by Spanish, Irish and UK authorities on Friday, October 23, 2020. A Colt Python revolver was found by officers using a metal detector and was dug up. Initial reports stated that it was believed to be the same make and model as the gun used to kill Veronica Geerin, although after investigation, that was found not to be the case. The authorities also found four kilos of cannabis, 15,000 Zimov's sleeping pills, as well as cash and mobile phones. In December 2020, Gilligan was released on bail but ordered not to leave Spain. His passport was confiscated and he was required to sign on every two weeks. In November 2021, it was reported that Gilligan and others would face drug and guns charges in Spain, with the investigating judge determining that enough evidence was present. The Spanish authorities have not released any information regarding his indictment. To this day, he denies any involvement in the murder of Veronica Guerin. While Veronica Guerin's life was ended abruptly at the age of 37, the ripples of the impact she made to Ireland and its crimescape through her investigative work is still very much evident today. A scholarship was set up by the School of Communications in Dublin City University and Independent News and Media in her memory. Independent News and Media owns the Sunday Independent Newspaper, the final paper Veronica worked for. The scholarship covers the cost of fees for a student attending DCU's Journalism Master's course. Two movies, both shot in Ireland, were made based on her life and work. In 2000, a film titled When the Sky Falls was released starring American actress Joan Allen. Although it was based on Geerin's life, the character names were altered from the real-life versions. In 2003, the Joel Schumacher-directed and Jerry Bruckheimer produced, Veronica Guerin was released. It starred Australian actress Kate Blanchett in the titular role, and provided a full biographical account of Guerin's life and subsequent passing. Blanchett picked up a Golden Globe nomination for Best Actress in a Motion Picture Drama for her portrayal. A soundtrack was released to accompany the movie, via Hollywood Records. In 1996, Guerin was posthumously honoured in her home country, at the People of the Year Awards. Her husband, Graham, accepted the award on her behalf, which, as per the award citation, was given for her journalistic integrity, her pursuit of the truth, and her commitment to free media, for which she gave her life. In 2000, Veronica was named as one of the International Press Institute's 50 World Press Freedom Heroes in its inaugural awards year. On June 22nd, 2001, a memorial bust in Veronica's likeness was unveiled by then Taoiseach and member of the Fianna Fáil party, Bertie Ahern. It was created by a prominent Irish figurative sculptor, John Call, and was jointly commissioned by independent newspapers and the government-created National Millennium Committee. There are two plaques which adorn the stone pillar on which the bust sits. The first plaque at the top reads,
1: Veronica Geirn. 1959-1996 1959-1996 to 1996. Be not
0: afraid. Greater justice was her ideal, and it was her ultimate achievement. Her coverage and sacrifice saved many from the scourge of drugs and other crime. Her death has not been in vain. The second plaque reads, Veronica Guerin, Sunday independent journalist, was murdered on 26th of June 1996. The sculpture resides in the Dove Lane Gardens at Dublin Castle where visitors can pay their respects to this day. Also in 2001, Irish folk singer Christy Moore featured a tribute song entitled Veronica on his album This Is The Day. The track documents her murder and is styled as a message to her killer. The song is again featured on Christy's 2013 album Where I Come From, with the title expanded to include Giran's surname. While legacy is largely considered a triumph in the face of adversity, on May 14, 97, her brother Jimmy Gearyn questioned whether independent newspapers did enough to protect Veronica while in their employ. In his statement, which was published in the Irish Times newspaper, Jimmy stated, "There are laws to keep people safe at work, and when this is overlooked or neglected, it results in the worker, and in this case, the journalist, from being exposed to danger." Pure commercial gain. This, in my view, is what happened in Veronica's case and is totally unacceptable. In its defence, the Sunday Independent claimed they tried to stop Veronica working the way she did, but that ultimately she would have simply left the paper and gone elsewhere. Angus Fanning went on to say that it was up to each individual journalist to decide how they wished to conduct their operations, and that if journalists were to succumb to intimidation and threats to their lives, then freedom of speech would be the first casualty. Veronica was scheduled to fly to London on the day after her murder. She was due to partake in a forum titled Journalism Under Fire, Media Under Siege, where she would speak in a discussion titled Dying to Tell a Story, Journalists at Risk. The world would never be able to hear her thoughts on this subject that day, yet her own life story would come to do so. However, back in 1995, Veronica Gearn was awarded the Committee to Protect Journalists 1995 International Press Freedom Award. We end this episode on her acceptance speech, which gives an insight into her thoughts on the strict libel laws under which journalists such as herself have had to work under.
1: <clears throat> Thanks, I really am both humbled and honoured to receive this award, particularly uh, because of the company uh, that I'm keeping here, the other recipients, I certainly feel are more deserving than myself. I'm accepting this award on behalf of myself and particularly on behalf of my colleagues in the Sunday Independent, who have encouraged me and supported me in my investigative work uh, whilst I've been working in the paper. It, It is very unusual to hear that an Irish reporter has been shot or intimidated. Unfortunately, because of the ever-rising crime problems in Ireland, a number of reporters, not just myself, have been subjected to death threats and to intimidation on a daily basis. So for my colleagues in other newspapers and in the broadcast media, I'm grateful that the CPJ have decided to honour an Irish and European journalist. Um, Unfortunately, in in Ireland, journalists there also have to face uh, the, the threat of possible imprisonment. And I welcome this opportunity to highlight the appalling case of a colleague of mine who works in the Irish Independent, and she too is facing, uh, like Fred Membe here, she's facing a possible jail sentence. And the reason that she's facing possible imprisonment is because she published a, a document which was widely circulated in the within the police force in Ireland about the suspects of the bank robbery, um, which I reported uh, the day before my which I reported on the day before my shooting. Now. Liz Allen is, is my colleague who's facing a possible jail sentence uh, she's it's alleged breach of the Official Secrets Act. We have to face, you know, we write under ridiculous restrictive laws in Ireland. It's a wonderful country, great place to visit, but unfortunately for journalists, the most difficult thing that we have to work within are our restrictive libel laws. It's difficult for our publishers because they're the people who have to pay the lawyers the massive amounts of money on a daily basis in courts. These are the issues that I feel that I have to highlight here. It's not the fact that journalists may be shot, but it is the legitimate restrictions that we work within. And I thank you, I thank the committee for uh, the protection of journalists for giving me the opportunity to highlight this. I really am humbled and honoured to accept this award. In doing so, I want to thank two people who have encouraged me despite an incredibly difficult last 12 months Uh, and they are my husband Graham and my son Cahill because I can assure you that if they hadn't supported me I wouldn't be doing it. Thank you very much.
0: For further information on this topic we recommend reading the following... Evil Empire, The Irish Mob and the Execution of Journalist Veronica Gearan by Paul Williams, Veronica Gearan, The Life and Death of a Crime Reporter by Emily O'Reilly, A Letter to Veronica, The Last Days of Veronica Gearan Crime Reporter by Michael Sheridan. Thank you for listening to the Irish Crimes podcast hosted by me, John Ralph. You can follow us on social media at the Irish Crimes on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate and subscribe on your chosen platform. For now, thank you for listening. August Langefohl.